Welcome to C3 Church Tugra. You're about to hear a great message from one of our guest speakers. Get ready to be inspired to live your best life. Everybody, I think I'm on air. Yep, lovely to see you. Although I can't really see you, you're all in the dark out there. <laughs> anyway, please be seated. In a moment, we shall have a prayer the kind of prayer I like to pray. Because uh, uh, I just think I, whether I speak better or not after I pray, it, it always seems to get understood better, understood more. I explained that this morning that I had discovered this anointing. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about understanding. It has a lot to say about it. Solomon said, in all you're getting, get wisdom, you know, get understanding, you know, cry out for it. Uh, that's actually what I did when I first got converted without knowing I was doing the right thing. I was converted when I was 15. And nobody told me to do this, but I'd sit on my bed every night and I'd read a chapter or two of Paul. I used to love Corinthians especially. And uh, then I had a prayer list scribbled with a pencil on a piece of scrap paper. And every night I would pray for wisdom and for understanding and for knowledge and for insight and for discernment and ask the Lord to teach me right from wrong and teach me the scriptures. And what I tried to do was to list every word I could possibly think of that meant the same thing. <laughs> and so every night I would pray down this list. And... Uh, Really, to be honest about it, you know, I didn't notice any change going on, but within a year, it seemed I was wiser than all my teachers. I'm talking about, you know, Sunday school teachers and that kind of thing in the church where I was. And um, in fact, I, I preached within a year of being converted and, uh, and ended up in charge of the Sunday school. And uh, anyway, you know, one thing leads to another. So I was only 17, I think, when I became the Sunday school superintendent. And uh, except they called it the Young People Sergeant Major in the Salvation Army, you know, <laughs> Canberra City Temple. And uh, it's getting warm up here. It got warm this morning too, but I was, I was, I was a newcomer, so I was too embarrassed to take my coat off. But I, no, it's fine there now. And um, <clears throat> so um, anyway, that's how I began. And I, these days when I travel, I recommend to young people, young people especially, really take up that kind of prayer because make a huge difference to your heart and your insight, your outlook on things. But, you know, don't expect results in five minutes. I mean, someone this morning quoted a scripture that said he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And most people take no notice of the word diligently. See, they think he's a rewarder of those who seek him. No, he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, which would imply that at least... Every day, keep asking him for the same thing. And if you get sick of asking, thank him for the same thing. Actually, thanking is a great way to go because it gets you on the front foot. And, and I've discovered with most things that I pray for that there is a phase where you begin seeking the Lord for it, asking and, and laying out the promises and pleading from your heart and, and really arguing with God if you have to. It's okay to argue. Uh, you learn how to make righteous arguments with the Lord, you know? 
Well, think about the Syrophoenician woman in the Gospels. You know, when, when he says to her, I mean, she'd been calling out all day for him to heal her daughter and he ignores her completely for ages. When the Lord does that to you, he's up to something. Listen, honestly, if you pray and, the, and it's tough going, ah, God's up to something. You know, don't be fooled. And uh, so in the end, when she finally says to him, you know, Lord, would you? And he says, <clears throat> I've been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and it wouldn't be right. You know, it wouldn't be right to take the children's bread and throw it to their dogs. Because, you know, the Jews always called the Gentiles dogs. Uh, and he was being purposely offensive. You know, so don't let this get put you off. The, the Lord is trying to bring something out of you. And so she gives him this very clever reply. You know, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table, you know. Ah, he says, such faith, you know, boom healed. And you've got to know how to argue with God. And you, you argue with him on the basis of his word. You know, here's Moses up the mountain. Israel sinned, you know, golden calf and all that. And poor old Moses, he'd been up there 40 days already without a square meal, right? And he's got to turn around and go back up and do it another 40 days. Except this time he had to carve out the tablets of stone himself. Well, the Lord's still inscribed with a finger, but you know, he had to prepare the tablets of stone because he busted the first lot, right? So he takes them back up. And, um, but at some point in that whole story, the Lord, um, <clears throat> his anger arose, you know, because of all this sin in the camp. And he, he says to Moses, get out of my road. I'm coming through. I'm going to kill him. Yeah. And you're basically facing, you know, a runaway locomotive. You know, this is a, this is a freight train coming through. You know? <laughs> and Moses stood his ground. Oh, not so, Lord. Be it far from you. And he had an argument as to why the Lord shouldn't do it. And that's actually what the Lord's looking for. Because he would say, ah, such faith. And what you've asked for, you've got it. All right? So don't, don't quit. Learn how to argue with God. Right? These are faith arguments, right? <laughs> and, and to make a good faith argument, you, it's very handy to know a lot of what's in here. right? <laughs> yeah, but Lord, you said, you know. <laughs> Because when he says, you know, I think this, you can say, yeah, but I know you think that, you know. <laughs> so you've got to kind of get ahead of the get ahead of the curve, right? So start reading the thing. Got to know the got to know the heart of God. But meanwhile, pray those prayers and to get on the front foot with it all, because it pays off in the long term. Just remember, it's not, we're not in this for short term. We're in, the, in it for the long term outcomes. They're the critical ones. We deal with eternity here, not tomorrow so much, you know? And uh, you have an eternal, eternal soul. Look, this morning the word I brought was received very well. I go lots of places and I get received well in a lot of places. Uh, the Lord has granted me a grace that the ministry is really acceptable to the saints. And uh, people generally understand quite well what I have to say. So I do get, you know, some good feedback, but it was very clear this morning that, you know, right through the whole house, there was a, a good understanding and a good acceptance and hearts really blessed. Now that says to me uh, that there's cause for congratulations here, you know, not to kind of puff up the fleshly side of you, but just to honor the fact that a good work's been done here. You know, your leaders, there's been prayer poured in, and there's been instruction and it's like prepared ground. So I thank, I thank the Lord, you know. We're building on good things. And so I'm just, I'm just putting more seed in this good field. Uh, just improve the crop a bit, you know, hopefully. A bit more fruitfulness in the crop. Now, 
Um, to all honour you, you know, for you and your leaders and a lot of sweet people around here, and I thank God for you. Uh, I have an app. Now, I teach on a lot of subjects, even though when I travel, I, I have a message from the Lord, although it's a very comprehensive message and it's so vast, it can't be taught everywhere you go. If you had a whole, whole week to teach, you wouldn't cover it all. Got to the stage where books had to be written. And basically from 1989, the Lord began to reveal to me for the first five or six years, it was a revelation of apostles, that he was restoring them. But what, was the, what would the nature of an apostle be? What, what authority would they have and not have? And a whole host of other things but after five or six years, as I said this morning, the ground shifted and suddenly I realized it wasn't just about apostles at all, but about a transformation of the nature of the whole church in the whole world. From being a very institutionalized people to a, a non-institutionalized people, a very relational people. Uh, and um, of course this have, has huge implications for the structure of the body of Christ. And it took me time to get uh, really grips with that, really understand that. But, um, and, and I might get a minute tonight to tell you how I came to understand it and what it was I did understand. But two years later, I called my church to a week of prayer. And the idea was to have a hot, strong revival prayer meeting. We were going to pray from 6 a.m. to 5 p.m. every day, pour out our hearts to God. I, I said to the church, look, you turn up ready for a prayer meeting like William Berth liked his cup of tea, you know, hot and strong, you know? And because uh, we knew how to pray hot and strong prayers. But when we turned up at 6 a.m. Monday morning, the Lord put us to silence, would not allow us to pray. And um, it was like, you know, the lion's den with Daniel in it reversed. He just, he would not allow anyone to have a prayer, even though he was present. There's nothing wrong with the atmosphere, but you couldn't have prayed to save your life. And, um, we sat in the presence of God in silence for an hour and a second hour and a third hour. And it took all this time for me to build understanding of what the Lord was saying, even though he wasn't talking to us. He wasn't allowing us to talk to him and he refused to talk to us. But it became clear what he was saying. And now, because our church had been full of revelation, uh, spiritual warfare and prophecy and victories and, and every Sunday morning, great moves of the spirit. And we used to get phenomenal healings. And yet when... When he got a hold of us in this prayer meeting, he said, you are not listening. You've hardened your heart. You've closed your ears. And I discovered that when you get gifts of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit moving amongst you and you think you're hearing God, because we were getting dreams and interpretation and we'd closed gates of Hades in the city. We'd, we'd destroyed the two principalities that were the major ones in the city at the time. You think you're hearing God, you're getting all this information. It turns out all of that is only the top 10% of what the Lord wants to say. That's the gifts of the Spirit, and you're going to get that whether you're in the will of God or not. No, but the other 90%, like the iceberg under the water, you only get that if you pay attention. And he wants a listening people. And he made us sit in silence. He said, you're going to sit here and shut up. He didn't say that, actually. That it, was, it was thoughts to that effect, you know, uh, until I'm good and ready to speak. But he didn't speak all day. <laughs> and we sat there all day, Monday till five o'clock, knowing, you know, come back tomorrow. And 6 a.m. the next day, we listened to the Lord. But he didn't speak all day Tuesday. He didn't speak all day Wednesday. I had a sense he'd say something Thursday. And he did. It got 11.20. He just made this little comment. But following up on that comment turned our church upside down. 
But then we kept listening that day and the next day. And at five to five, I'm kind of looking at my watch thinking, oh, you beauty, you know, it's nearly all over. But it wasn't. Because he's, at that point, he gives me a vision and he said, keep listening. So we brought the whole church back on Sunday between the morning meeting and the night meeting. We had the whole church listen all Sunday afternoon. And a whole bunch of us listened again Monday, Tuesday. And um, even Monday, mm, no, there was just one little word in the background. It was rather a foreboding word. And it sat there in the background all day long was all he was saying. But by Wednesday, Thursday, I'm starting to get dreams, hear the Lord. And it was Friday morning that I woke and Christ was standing right by my bed, ready to talk. And uh, it didn't seem to bother him that I was still in my pajamas and, you know, hadn't washed the sleep out of my eyes or anything. But he had things to say. And he said, take an apostolic message to the nations. Now, he never says hello or please or thank you. <laughs> he gives commands, but it feels so right. And anything else wouldn't feel right. And, and you're so conscious. But, and yet, even though he's standing there in front of you, you, you could not describe what he looked like to anybody. And, and um, anyway... You, it just doesn't register in the memory. But he said, take an apostolic message to the nations, remain the leader of the church at home, and keep looking into the eyes of Jesus Christ. And he was gone. But it felt like he'd said the last thing first. It's amazing how he can do that. And I fell on my knees, you know, cried out to God. I said, Lord, you give me such a great task. You know, help me. And then I thought, he, d he didn't tell me what the message was. You know, because <laughs> you know, he said, take a message. But I'd, I'd have been traveling to the nations, teaching what he'd been revealing about apostles and the nature of the apostolic church. And I thought, well, all I can do is just keep going, you know. And I was due to go out again two weeks later. But when I went out the next time, the message just exploded. And the material got so vast, it, it had to be written down. You couldn't preach it. And I'm not done. You know, I'm, I'm four long books into this and more's coming. I'm supposed to try and get two more out now. Uh, but I just mentioned this because aside from all this uh, light I have on the nature of the apostolic church, and, and there's, a, there's a whole lot of stuff attached to that. There's a whole lot of other subjects I teach about as well. And you'll find a vast quantity of all this teaching it's all revelatory teaching. In, um, it's all free. It's in our website, the audio, the video. We have an app. If you have a smartphone or iPad, you can go uh, in your app store. You, uh, you type in, you know, in the, in the search file, put in peace, the word peace. If you think of peace with God, that's the name of our ministry. Peace Apostolic, you type that in and you'll get offered this free app in which is all the free teaching. And uh, when you open up the app, first, once you get to the home page, it takes a minute, uh, there's four boxes. One of them says message library, tap on that. You go in there and there's all these big subject areas, including spiritual warfare and eschatology and victorious Christian living and a host of other things. And all the Sunday by Sunday teaching I do at home and the annual apostolic conferences, they're all in there. So they're all listed. And then when you go into any one of these big subject areas, there are listed all the teaching series and things. And uh, you can listen through the app or you can download to listen later. So the app is one way to get it and the website's another. It's simply w.peace, just one word, peace.org.au. Uh, YouTube is loaded up with it too and there's a podcast. I don't know how you access podcasts, but you can, uh, it's there. 
And then there's books, two of which are here tonight. So the second book I wrote is The Spirit of Sonship, and uh, they're normally $15 if you go buy it online off my website, and even maybe more in Kurong, for all I know. Just $12 here tonight, bit of a special. And this one, it's normally 15 bucks too, but it's just $10 here tonight, you get the two for 20. That's not bad, you know. And, um, but these, these books are packed full of information. And this about really walking with spiritual fathers, and that is absolutely crucial to you. There's nothing, no more crucial matter in all of Christianity than this. As far as your Christ-likeness, you're walking with the Lord, you must walk with your leaders, you must have a heart for your leader. And maybe we'll come back to that. And uh, then the other book that's here tonight is the, one, the most recent one I wrote, The City Gate. And this takes the lid off some of the biggest issues we have spiritually in our cities relative, all, all of them caused by Christianity, by the way. Now, I'm not saying there aren't a whole host of problems caused by the world and sin. There are, but the trouble is the sin in the church. And it's sin in the church that more than anything affects the economy and in turn can affect politics and a whole host of things. And that's what you're going to read about in here. Not, not sin. You're not going to read about sin. You're going to read what we need to do to, to really have a different kind of church in our cities and some of the things that need to be addressed to make it so. And you're going to read some pretty astounding stories. Um, anyway, I'll leave it to you to, to explore that. Good bedtime reading, this one, except you might not be able to shut the book. That's an easy one to read and full of the most in interesting things. So I just wanted to tell you about the app, really, before praying this little prayer and getting started. Not that I want to take all night. Uh, it says up there on that, it's 11.37, 36, 35. Ah, it's a countdown. I've got 11 and a half minutes to run. Is that right? <laughs> Over there it says 18.56. There's four minutes to seven. What time are we quitting? That's what I want to know. Yeah, all right. We... So, here we go. Um, the serious ones, if they want... Anyway, look, let me see if I can get through this. Um, the apostolic message that the Lord gave me, I, I have authority in with respect to its accuracy, its veracity. There are not many people who can stand here and say Christ appeared and gave me authority to preach this message. But what he gave to me even before that was the ability to understand it so as to explain it. And that's what I do all over the world. But uh, in the year 2002, when my spiritual father came to visit, I'd been already traveling for more than 10 years into Asia and teaching all of this, you know, into um, the Philippines and Cambodia and India and other places. But he brought a word, and, and, and it was, take this message to the nation, Australia. And he said, this message will change the nation. Big statement, right? Big call. And when you get a thing like this, of course, you think you're going to go out and preach a few conferences and revival will break out, and, you know, it'll be all the difference. But as you go, you discover, no, the, the Lord is working for the long haul, and this is cultural change, it's multi-generational change, and the work will take about three generations, and it'll probably all up to shift the church from where it was around 1992,000 to where he wants it to be in another level of maturity altogether. It'll take about 100 years. But it doesn't mean we're not well into it. We're about 27 years in. 
And a lot has happened already that even 15 or 18 years ago I was describing and hadn't even begun, but a lot of it is now well underway. And um, some of the things that I was saying 15 and 20 years ago were, were so unlikely, and yet now they're actually happening. So I, I thank the Lord for all of that, but there's a whole lot more yet to happen. And I remember years ago, look, um, Hazel got a word this morning. She, she was just praying and doing something, and the Lord spoke, and he gave this strong word. He, he said, persevere. And then he added to it, he said, persevere, and you will win through. And I said, well, Hazel, what does that apply to? You know, Because I, I had half a dozen questions I was weighing up. But later when she sought the Lord, he said it was about this apostolic message in Australia. So, and then I no sooner got that out of Hazel, Julie sends me a dream that her dream said pretty much the same thing. But I've been thinking for a few days about a dream the Lord gave me years ago. And in the dream, I was driving a car with my spiritual father, who was, he was a great apostle, Chuck. And he was in the passenger seat and I was driving the car and in the dream, ah, uh, well, it's our subject. Um, in the dream, I was driving the car with Chuck in it to town after town in the Midwest of New South Wales. So you're talking like Forbes, you know, Parks, you know, Dubbo. And the astounding thing in the dream was that outside every one of these towns, on every road, every road leading into the town, not just one road leading in, but every road that led into the town, there was a huge line of combine harvesters. And they were all lined up, one behind the other, you know, a couple of miles of these on every road, but they were waiting to enter the town. So you think harvest, combine harvesters. In other words, this is powerful evangelism, powerful preaching, right? Waiting to enter the towns of New South Wales, which the Lord called the heartland of the nation. But what was the symbolism? See, dreams are very, very symbolic, right? They're not literal, not usually. The symbol of, see, a car, for me in dreams, a car is always the symbol of your ministry. And in the car was not only myself called to be an apostle, but my spiritual father who was an apostle. And the two of us, the kind of thing I teach, you know, he was pioneering, I was pioneering, the Lord, and the Lord put us together, it kind of ramped it up. So to me, what the dream was saying that before this great harvest came right through the heartland of the nation, the apostolic had to enter those towns. Yeah. We were driving into town after town. And I think that's what's going on. We're seeding Australia. It doesn't look like anything much is happening, but seeding Australia with a word that at the grassroots level is changing hearts and is meant to change hearts. Anyway, just thought you'd like to know. So let me pray a little prayer, and then we're going to come to grips with some, some spiritual things. So, Father, I do thank you. And I thank you there's an anointing here. There's a grace here tonight to understand the word of God. You've given it to us. And we would humble our hearts in... Holy fear, trembling before your word. And we pray that the spirit of understanding, that powerful anointing that rested on Christ, 
would rest on us tonight. Lord, I receive that, a fresh portion from your hand, and I place it upon the mind and the heart of every person in this room. My brothers and sisters, I place upon you the spirit of understanding that comes from Christ Jesus, and I release it to you. Now, Lord, open the eyes of the hearts, open minds to understand Scripture. Holy Spirit, be our teacher tonight. Be the spirit of truth in the hearing of all your people. I thank you, Lord. Hmm. I was speaking this morning about this uh, critical relationship that you and I are each meant to have with our leaders. We would call it the spirit of sonship. And all this means is that in the heart of the Lord Jesus, there were certain attitudes and values. You know as well as I, Scripture says, have this mind in you which also was in Christ Jesus. I'm quoting the old King James Version. Your modern version, have the same attitude as Jesus. Who? And it lists or describes the attitude of his heart in which he humbled himself, took the lowest place, became a servant, even unto the point of death. And then God was able to exalt him to the highest place because of that. And the clear instruction of Scripture is that every single one of us is meant to be like that. Now, it's not to be the only thing in which we are to emulate the Lord Jesus. We're meant to imitate him completely. But our leaders are meant to so imitate Jesus that we can walk with them and imitate them. That's the way it's meant to be. That's meant to be the structure of Christianity. But you become far more Christ-like and you become far more godly if you walk with your leaders, even if they're not great examples. This is an interesting thing. I've discovered that the Lord does the most powerful things for you, not based on how good your fathering or leadership is, but based on how good your following is. In other words, it's got nothing to do with whether you've got a quality father. It's got everything to do with whether you're a quality son in the house. And interesting Bible example, the most extreme example you can think of is King David, whose spiritual father was King Saul except David wasn't the king at this point, but he was Saul's son-in-law, lived in his house, ate at his table every day, was his armor bearer. You know, you can't get more closer discipleship than that. And he ends up the commander of his armies. He loves Saul, he honors Saul, he'll do anything for Saul. He just wants Saul to be a success. David's a son. See, when God said he was, he was gonna raise up a man after his own heart, listen, what kind of heart do you think God has? He said David was the man after his own heart. Well, what's in David? Just the greatest son you could imagine to the worst father you could imagine. What is the heart of God? The heart of God is sonship. See, don't, don't make a mistake about this. You know, you sit around thinking that God is a father who has a son. It's just as true to say God's a son who has a father. Equally true. And you know that with God, the father, God, the son, both of them happen to be the same age. The son's not younger than the father. The, but they fulfill these roles. This is how they walk with one another. And, and it may well be, look, I've got spiritual sons who are older than me. It's got nothing to do with age. It's got everything to do with the fact that we fulfill these roles and in it we grow in grace. And if the Lord gives me the grace to be a blessing to someone, as a father, I, I serve them. They need a father. So I serve them by being a father. And, and uh, 
I need sons. They serve me by being sons. But you know, you know where you end up? You end up so close as friends. You, your peers. Chuck, Chuck and I ended up so close. The, the trust went so deep. And uh, the, the affection. When he died, I just wept. Oh, more than, more than that. You know, truth is, I just howled, you know. Once I got alone, such a loss, you know. Because it's holy. You know, it's holy bereavement. It's holy grief. You know, he's in the Lord and so was I. Even to this day, I have days when I just love to see, would long to see Chuck again. But if you, in case you don't realise it, that's real Christian leadership. Yeah. The, the other kind is fake. Yeah. The other kind is, it's religious, you know. It, it's puffed up. It's, it's based on worldly views of organization and leadership. You want a real picture of Christian leadership? Paul says concerning Timothy, how I long to see you with tears. Timothy hadn't passed away. He was off doing mission for Paul. Paul weeps because he longs to see him. Lazarus dies. Jesus knows darn well he's not dead, dead. Well, he's dead, but Jesus is going to get there and pull him out of the grave. But Jesus weeps. Real Christian leaders have a heart. And real Christian followers are meant to have that heart too. And it's because God has a heart. But it's the heart of a son, in case you didn't know. In... Um, in Hebrews chapter 1, there's a scripture that says, it's, it's verse 9, I think, um, of the Son of God. And it's an interesting passage because God, the Father, calls God the Son, God. He speaks, God the Father speaks, and he says to the Son, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. It's amazing what's there and we never really read it, yeah? Because, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever because you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Now, this is the eternal throne of David that you and I are totally dependent on. This is the kingdom of God, thank you, you know, of, in which you're priest because he's the great high priest. And so th this is our inheritance. A host of stuff in that we don't even begin to understand, but it's our inheritance and it all depends on the way these two walk together. Well, there's three that walk together, but we've only got a revelation of this two. You know, God the Father, God the Son. But um, <clears throat> he says, because, uh, so this throne that's going to last forever, your salvation that's going to last forever, your place in that kingdom that's going to last forever depends on this one thing. It says, because you have loved righteousness, but hated wickedness. Except the wickedness is not wickedness as you might think. The Greek term means lawlessness. The Greek word was enomia, lawlessness. And that includes independence and being a law unto yourself. The Son of God was never independent of the Father. Now, this is the heart of God. And I heard the Lord say as I was looking at that one day, because I knew what the word meant. I, I knew what the word was behind that wickedness, the lawlessness, of which Jesus of which, by the way, Jesus in the Gospels 
says of the Pharisees, you're full of lawlessness. They're religious people. They were the most knowledgeable Bible people of the day. And he says, you're full of lawlessness. Like whited sepulchres, you know, full of dead men's bones. And on another occasion, he said, concerning the final judgment, he said, in that day, many will say, many? That, that, that's frightening stuff. Many will say to me, Lord, so they're calling him Lord, did we not do many mighty things in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? Well, that sounds like a Pentecostal kind of crowd. Planted churches, started Christian schools, you know, went to the nations with missions. We did mighty things in your name. We prophesied in your name. But he says, I'll say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. You who practice enemia, same word, lawlessness. You who practice lawlessness. And there are any number of people in the church who are a law unto themselves. They're not plugged into relationships. They've never given their heart to their leaders. They, they want to stay in control of all things. There's no submission in the heart. Dangerous, dangerous place to be. Because it is so opposite the real heart of Jesus. We're supposed to be like Jesus. Jesus hated independence. You know, there never was a moment when he said to the Father, you know, I just need to find out who I am for myself. <laughs> and I heard the Father, I heard the Lord say, if the Son of God had been independent, even for a moment, God could not be holy. The very holiness of God depends on three persons living in such community, there's never a shadow between them. There's never a case when two of them feel they've got something special going and leave the other one out of something. And see, that's what makes God so holy. You know, if you live alone, you can be a very holy person. Then get married, you find out you're not, you're not such a great character after all, you know. All your weaknesses show up. But then two people can be, you know, if there are only two people in the world, can be quite self-deceiving. You know, two's company, three's a crowd. They can just live for each other, not that hard. But if three people have to walk together, oh, very difficult. And that's why for God to be God, for God to be love, for God to be holy, he must be a minimum of three persons. If God was one, he wouldn't be God. If God was two, he wouldn't be God. He must be three. But he can be four. And that's where you come in. It's where the bride of Christ comes in. So you, you haven't got any ordinary salvation. And this is why people sitting in church with an independent spirit might find they're not counted in that number. Jesus saying, I never knew you. See, he's making up a body. And a body is actually knit together. There's wholeness, there's oneness, and it requires more than anything the giving of the heart, the submission of the heart, and you learn to walk with one another. Perhaps none of us do it perfectly, but your heart is either inclined in that direction or it's inclined in the other direction, and that in the end is what determines whether you really yielded to the Lord or not.
So if the Son of God had been independent even for a moment, God could not be holy. And then I heard the Lord say, if the Son of God was independent even for a moment, you could not be saved. Eternity depends on it. The fact that the chair you're sitting on exists at all depends on it. The, the fact that a certain father and a certain son walk together forever all depends on that. Anything happens to that, and uh, for all I know, everything disappears. The whole thing's held together by the power of the word of the Son of God. And the beautiful thing is you're called to be like him. Scripture says we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Therefore, you need to have the heart of sonship because it's God's heart. Jesus, Jesus came to reveal to us what God is like and what he revealed was God is a son who loves a father. And everything he did, he did in service to a father, out of love for a father. All his preaching, teaching, he directs everybody to the father. He says, be ye perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. He loved the father. He served the father. He says, I've not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He said, a body thou hast prepared for me, I come to do thy will, O God. He says, I don't speak on my own, I only speak the things I hear my father saying. And he longed for the day when finally having completed the father's will, he go back to be with his father. Listen, he's a son. And if you would understand your Christianity, you'd better embrace sonship. To be, if you want to be rich. And this has been revealed to us. You know, we are, it's not been revealed to us much in Scripture about the relationship between God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, nor much about the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus. We know a few things, but there's a wealth of revelation about what God the Father and God the Son are like toward each other. And the reason for that follows on from Deuteronomy 31, 31 that says the hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children so that we may obey the word of this law forever. Wow. It's crucial to your salvation that you understand the father-son relationship of God, the nature of God, and especially the sonship that's in his heart. And if you can take the, if you could identify all the values that were in the son of God, what you'd find is that that's exactly what's in the father's heart. The father in nature, no different to the son. Oh, anyway, thank God we serve a holy God. But it requires relationships to be holy. Let me be very blunt about it to everybody in the body of Christ here tonight. Without relationships, you are not holy. If God can't be holy without relationships, how for Pete's sake are you going to be holy without relationships? And my Bible says that, that Christ appoints holy apostles and holy prophets. Let me tell you, there's no apostle in this world that's holy who doesn't walk in relationships. There's no prophet holy that doesn't walk in relationships. This is why we're going to teach the body of Christ all over what it's all about. You must have a heart for one another. The scripture is very plain in lots of cases, like this one I quoted this morning. If any man says he loves God, but does not love his brother, the truth is not in him. And there's a lot of other scriptures like that. No wonder Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, as I have loved you. Notice that phrase, 
as I have loved you. That's what we would call the measure of Christ. As I have loved you, so you also must love one another. The measure of Christ. But Ephesians 4 tells us that Christ in his ascension appoints apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints until we all come to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Jesus Christ, which is always a measure of love. And, and there's a host more on that, but kind of, I'll, I'll move on. Uh, the church on earth is being moved toward, forward toward a state of maturity that goes beyond anything the church has known in history. His, history is a, is a lineal work of God where he's building something in the earth. And um, the last 500 years is quite an am amazing a continuity of the works of God, one thing being built upon another, transforming the church. That doesn't mean we don't have generation by generation things comes up that, that are not good and have to be dealt with, but lessons are learned from it. But he, he is step by step positioning the church for a far greater degree of spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness and of carrying the power of Christ in the earth than of anything we've known in the past. The stuff coming, the like of which you don't understand yet, and the like of which no Christian community pretty much has ever seen yet in the world. There's big stuff ahead, but it's one step at a time, and the things you've got to come to grip with right now is the spirit of understanding that will lead you into far richer relationships with one another, but the single most important building block is your heart relationship with your leader. Because when that scripture says, if anyone says he loves God but does not love his brother... It's very easy for somebody to say, oh, I love the church. Just like they said, oh, I love God. But they're just as big a liar when they say the second is the first. Or can be. It's, it's, it's got to be something more particular than that. Paul said we are members of one another. You find this in 1 Corinthians 12. We are members of one another. And you're supposed to come to the place where that's such a sense. No, no you're not a Baptist. You're not a C3. You're not a Presbyterian. You say, I'm a, I'm a member of Phil, and Phil's a member of me. I'm a member of Julie. It comes to this place where your identity comes from the people that you are so connected with, and you're all in Christ together and serving the Lord. And at the same time, as a, as a people, you're connected to another people and another people. Anyway, all of, the, all of this more and more is coming. Back to David. I'll raise up a man after my own heart, he says, and then he puts him through the worst possible experiences. This is typical God. You know, you pray for a big blessing, he's going to send you a problem because it's the doorway, it's the gateway. Don't, don't despise it. Embrace the thing. Say, oh, thank God, you've sent trouble at last. You know, because it'll mean good. And so... <laughs> Funny story is told about John Wesley because, you know, he copped a lot of persecution and there came a period where the persecution fell off, you know, it just seemed to get easier. And he was worried about it. He thought, this is a problem. And uh, so he gets off his horse and gets in behind some bushes and he's crying out to God and praying and making a racket, worried that the persecution's fallen away. When somebody going past, hears this racket from the bushes, picks up a rock and hurls it in and hits him one. And think, oh, thank God, you know. <laughs> so he rejoices, you know, not so bad after all, you know. <laughs> it's still there, you know. <laughs> Gets on his horse, goes on his way. <laughs> You've got to have the right perspective. 
He'd be all the more blessed, you know? <laughs> He'd preach all the better for that. Anyway, where were we? He puts King David through these tough times. Why? Because he wants to make him such a bigger man. Madame Jean Guillon, you might have heard of her. Uh, she wrote a book, Experiencing the Depths of Jesus Christ. She was one of the great old saints, French person, and one of the great saints of the church, and spent time in prison being persecuted, all of that. But it's recorded that she said to the, to the Lord, no wonder you have so few friends, you treat them so badly. <laughs> so welcome to the apostolic club, right? <laughs> Because he wants to make something better of you. So don't, don't despise it. Well, he puts David through this terrible experience just being the very person who should be a father to him hates, hates his guts and wants to kill him. Pin him to the wall with a javelin. But this is what so enlarged David's heart. It's what proved his love. He had to hide from Saul, but he never took away his heart from Saul. He never removed his love. Never removed his honoring of Saul and his desire to serve him. And when Saul was finally killed by the Philistines, you know, he, he writes a poem about it, raises a lament, sings about it, leads all Israel in mourning for Saul. He was a son. And most of you will never have a pastor like that. Javelins to the wall and all the rest, you know, deranged man, demon possessed, hate everybody's guts. You'll, you'll never have a pastor like that, right? No, you'll have a, we're in Christ, you'll have a good pastor, right? So you learn to love him. Walk with that brother. Here's what I'm saying about this text. The one that says, if any man says he loves God, but if he doesn't love his brother, the truth's not in him. It just so happens that amongst the brothers and sisters that are around us, there is one person who is the test of our heart, whether we're in this or not whether our heart's really given in love, whether we love the brethren or not. And that person's our leader. He's one of the brothers, but he happens to be the brother, or sometimes the sister, to whom the Lord has given authority to lead and to whom you're supposed to be in submission, you know, paying attention to, agreeing with, supporting, helping them become successful. That's meant to be your heart. And that's the real test of whether you love the church and it's the real test of whether you love the Lord. The problem is that so many grew up being hurt in experiences, family experiences with mums and dads and the like. So you get a certain amount of people in the church who have what we call an orphan heart. Meaning they, they don't know how to belong to the family they don't know how to give love. They don't know how to receive love. They're believers. They're saved. They, they know the gospel and they believe and the Lord's extended grace to them. But something about their heart has been marred and malformed. It's not a demon when we say an orphan spirit. It's not a demon. It's the way the heart's been formed and it needs healing. And churches have plenty of people like this. There are pastors like this too. And one of the common distinctives is that people like this find it very difficult to trust authority. Very often they'll have no trouble being close friends with people who are not over them, other brothers and sisters, but they'll struggle with drawing near in relationships to people who have any kind of authority. 
And in the church, the person with the most authority happens to be the senior pastor. And so very often they'll avoid them. And uh, in the worst cases, of course, they go from church to church because they can't last very long before they take offense and they bolt. And they'll come into churches saying, oh, there's a wonderful church. But six months later, a year later, two years later, they're going out the door saying there's no love in this place. But the truth is there is love in the place, but they don't know how to receive it. Don't know how to be transformed by it. They don't know how to give their heart. And invariably, these people always blame the authority figure for everything. There's no love in this place and it's all his fault. You know, that's, that's what goes on. And it's always a lie. That's the orphan heart, but it can be healed. Hallelujah. Now, it's, it's not an instantaneous healing necessarily. I had a, a case of this, and I'll, I'll tell this story, and, and we'll try and round off with a couple of things. I'll give you the short version, but um, on my staff is a pastor called Tony. Good friends of another Tony sitting right here, you know, you've stayed with him in his house and all that. And Tony's been with me a lot of years, since about 96. And uh, Tony came out of the Salvation Army, although before that they were Lutheran. And uh, we were adding one or two pastors to the church in those days, and we started Tony part time. He had a genuine call to the ministry, had a big heart of love, loved people, great pastoral gift. He was studying for the ministry, and we put him on part time and then full time. But after six years, I mean, I never even knew this orphan heart thing existed, but he had a really bad case of it. And after six years, uh, you know, I said to Hazel one day, you know, I, th I think Tony resents me. And she said, what? Isn't it obvious? And uh, so, you know, <laughs> should listen to your wives a bit earlier, I guess. But um, Tony used to take offense easily, but I didn't know that because he would, he would get so offended, he would call in sick. And he'd be sick for three days. And when he turned up, he's all cheerful, but he'd actually been offended and struggling with feelings. He had very, very low self-esteem and he believed deeply that he was useless and worthless because he, in growing up, his father kept saying, oh, you're useless. So his father, it was only backhanded humor, Aussie humor, no, oh, you're useless. Give that here to me. I'll show you how to do it. But it, it rang in Tony's ears. And he just, he, for him, even now it still rings in his ears, even though he's been healed. And uh, this impacted him so deeply. He grew up believing he was useless. He was worthless. He would never amount to anything. Anything he ever did would never be good enough. And so the result was he decided it wasn't worth trying. And instead, he, but he put on, a jovial front, happy, relaxed, so casual. I mean, so casual, drive you nuts. And, uh, you know, so he would always drift in. He's on my staff, right? He'd drift in late from meeting, flop into a chair, you know. And then he might leave early to make up for it, you know. Um, and he never seemed to take up responsibility. You know, you've had a late night, special night on, and, and uh, you know, you're packing up, you've got to pack up tables or something, and Tony disappeared, you know. And that kind of thing. And I'd be away on trip and I'd come back and every, everybody else greet me. But Tony, if he saw me come in the front door, he'd be, he'd be very busy over here. He'd make sure he didn't bump into me. I'd have to go to him say hello. He never came to me. And you'd think this is strange. But uh, the fact is he loved people and he would tirelessly serve other people. And um, funny thing is, he, 
In all those years, he never accrued to himself any great respect from people in the church. You know, they'd think of me as a father, David Hood as a father. They never thought of him that way because you cannot receive what you don't give. And um, however, it came to a head one day when he said to me, John, we've got to talk. And I knew it was trouble. So, you know, we sit in my office and he comes out with all these accusations and it's typical of people with an awful heart. They'll, they'll accuse the authority. They'll misinterpret what happens and accuse you for causing it. And so he had all these stories about how, you know, this person was hurt because of me and I'd beat that person up. And, and I said, well, Tony, I said, what you say, it's either right or wrong, you know. I said, I'll tell you what we could do. We could bring in all the other guys and, and sit them here and you, you could tell them everything you've told me, I'd be happy for you to do so. And they could judge whether you were right or wrong, whether it was, whether I was really guilty of these things or whether it was your perception. But I said, I, I think if we do that, you're the one that's going to get hurt, not me. And he said, he said, I think you're right. We'll just talk you and me. <laughs> and this one I had to level with him. And up to this point, I'd never been, had an opportunity to really level with the guy. And I said, Tony, you've got this big heart. You know, and your heart, because I was exaggerating in both directions with this, but I had to try and get through to him. I said, you've got such a big heart of love. But I said in there, it's, it's like a slice of the apple pie. I said, you've got this little sliver. I was exaggerating the other way of, of something that's not good. And I said, in there, you've got independence and pride and cynicism. And he, and he went as if to resist it, you know, but he slumped and he said, no, you're right. He said, but I don't know what to do about it. Well, I didn't know that I had named the three classic symptoms of this orphan heart thing. It's funny how people with really low self-esteem actually have high pride, take offense easily. Pride, independence, cynicism, you know, they'll, they'll sit back in the church and, oh, we'll see how this goes kind of thing, you know. And um, so he asked if he could take time off and pray and because the thing about Tony is he would seek the Lord, he would pray. I mean, he's a real Christian and he was a real pastor. So I gave him time and he took days and sought the Lord. And in those days, he got a revelation. He came along next weekend feeling, you know, a bit happier, a good happy, a bit happier and sat right behind me in the meeting, which has been unusual. And he shared this revelation with me. And when I heard what the Lord had shown him, I'm thinking, ah, why did the Lord show him that? You know, it seemed to me like useless stuff. You know, like, why didn't the Lord show him what was wrong with him? Uh, but what the Lord showed him was the great importance of authority in the church, of authority being established, that the Lord really was bringing back apostles to be a real authority in leading the church. And without that authority in place, God could not do what he wanted. He could not take the church where he wanted it to go. Well, I realize now that was a very important revelation for a guy with an orphan heart. He continued in prayer <clears throat> for a few months and finally came the day when my spiritual father was visiting and preaching. The day when I myself was sitting there and all of a sudden my heart was totally changed towards Chuck, my spiritual father, Chuck Clayton. Totally changed. I felt such love for him, such acceptance of him. I felt like I was so joined to him and he to me and all of us belonged to him and he belonged to all of us. I'm just filled with this. It was like a kind of a higher experience of, you know, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Just so shifted. What really happened for me is I was shifted from having a theory about sonship to having an experience of it. 
I'd, I'd had, we'd preached on it. I, I didn't preach any different scriptures or illustrations now than I did before, but we shifted from having a good theology to having a revelation, but not the kind of revelation where you, where you can kind of see something, a revelation that so changed the heart experientially that, that we were different people. And I didn't realize that in the moment that happened to me, it went to a large degree through the hearts of us all. But Tony, who'd been seeking the Lord for months and months to try and get an answer for this orphan heart he had, was delivered. He was so set free. And he came to me after the meeting. I've never seen a more happy Tony. First time he ever really came looking for me. And he comes across the building and he's beaming and he puts his arms all around me. He hugs, he holds under me. You know what had happened? Tony had become a son. He'd, he'd given me his heart, you know. The Lord transformed the heart. And um, interesting thing is, it totally changed the way people in the church saw him. Within two weeks, people started asking him to be their spiritual father. It had never happened before. Within three weeks, the Holy Spirit came upon him and gave him a portion of my authority. When I was away, he was... He could command blessing on the people. And I've discovered again and again over the years that when a pastor becomes a son, they become a father. It's like an instantaneous transformation takes place in the spirit realm. Something in the spirit realm, when, when, when a pastor, you know, whether they're 20, 30, 40, whatever, when in their heart they become a son to a father, something, something comes down the turnpike that floods into them and goes out and it's fathering. People see them differently, feel differently about them. It's a miracle. But, but we've seen this in the body. And this is just a little part of what the Lord's trying to do in this apostolic transformation. But it happens to be the heart of it, the core of it. Now, of course, he wants to go from that and knit the hearts of all the people to each other as well. And, and like there's a whole body of teaching on that too. You know, it's quite extensive, this whole thing. But this core relationship of father-son, the father-son relationship in the ministry, first of all in the fivefold, fivefold ministers must learn what it means to be a son. And, uh, you know, we're not just a bunch of ministers. No, we belong. The hearts are knitted to someone over us in the Lord. And if there's no one over you in the Lord, you, you put someone over you relationally. Now, if you're a member of a church, this is a no-brainer. Don't, don't be stupid and go out of here thinking, oh, I've got to find some spiritual father, you know? Look, looking in the dark, in the fog. Don't be so foolish. It's, it's in the house that you become sons. That, that's really easy for you. And um, there's no, you know, there's no point. You don't give your loyalty and your allegiance somewhere else, but, you, but you're a member of... Of, of somebody here. Now, if you're a member of a body, you give your heart, you give your allegiance, you give your loyalty, and you serve. And if you're in the wrong place and your heart's not there, you better ask what's wrong. Talk to your leader, what's wrong with me? Talk to the Lord, what's wrong? If you belong in some other place, fine, well, and good. But normally it's a matter of sorting out your heart right here. And you'll enter into such riches of grace in doing so. Now, for fivefold ministers like senior pastors of churches, life can be a bit more complex than that because uh, their denomination is not always the answer for spiritual fathering. Um, 
and I better not complicate the subject tonight by bringing up spiritual covering, which is a spiritual covering and spiritual fathering are two different things. But, but blessed are you when it's, when it's really in one person. And when you're a member of a church, it is in one person. When you're a member of the church, the senior pastor of the church is the, the core factor in spiritual covering as well as being the primary spiritual father of the house. So it, that's all integrated, wonderful, well and good. But when you're in the fivefold ministry, uh, it's wonderful if it's one person, but sometimes the person dies. Like in my case, it was Chuck. But when Chuck passed away, I had to think about, you know, how to reorder all of that. There's a period of grace. And uh, in the end, I, I did find the spiritual father the Lord wanted to have him. It's become very rich. But for a while, even though he was my spiritual father, he wasn't my apostolic covering. And I, but I won't bother you with the detail of how I resolved all of that. And finally, it's all come back together. Uh, if ministers are interested in that, sometime I'd talk to ministers about that. But what I am saying is in the body of Christ, there has to be a primary relationship that every one of us has with someone who's over us in the Lord. There's meant to be accountability. There's meant to be love. There's meant to be the longing of the heart. And then in churches, the Lord will also knit the hearts together right across the congregation but, but it's another whole body of teaching on how that actually happens. But it's all in Pentecost, as I said this morning. These, these are proper Pentecostal experiences. So in closing, may I make a comment with regard to Elijah Elisha. As you know, Elisha received a double portion of Elijah's spirit. But um, just studying the, the little recognized facts of the case, it was Elijah who said to Elisha, what would you have me do for you before I'm taken from you? In other words, a spiritual father really wants to bless his sons. Yes. Wants them to be enriched. But Elisha says, grant me the double portion of your spirit. Now in this terminology of double portion, Elijah was using the, the language, the vocabulary of the inheritance laws of Israel. And he's basically saying, I'm your firstborn. Grant me my inheritance. But he wants a double portion of his spirit, meaning his anointing. Many places in the Bible, the word anointing, the word spirit, the word power, the word grace are interchangeable. It was the anointings he had, the grace he had, the power of the spirit on him. He wanted a double portion of it. And Elijah says, all. Oh, it's very difficult. But if God, what is this teaching you? You need two fathers. You need to walk with a father on earth. And both of you relate to a father in heaven. And you've got something going here. And two fathers must agree. Don't any of you think you'll ever get a double portion of the spirit unless you're walking with two fathers. Father in heaven, father on earth. It's the only biblical picture we have. There is no other biblical picture. But I was asking the Lord for a message on, you know, the importance of fathering. And uh, after two weeks of just looking to the Lord for this message from some years ago, he woke me at 2.30 a.m. one night. And as I woke and he began to talk, he, he started, I wasn't expecting anything on Elijah Elisha. I just wanted information on fathering. 
But he began to talk about exactly why it was that Elisha could receive a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And the moment he begins talking with all this information, like reams of information, but at the same time, my, my nose began to run uncontrollably. I'm lying in bed on the pillow and, you know, just there's water going everywhere like, like liquid snot. And I couldn't make it stop, you know, and I'm trying to wipe it all up, you know, and it's just pouring out all the time he's talking. And I'm thinking, if I don't get up and write this down, I'll never remember all of this. And all the while I'm walking to the office, just trying to wipe all this mess up, mess is still continuing and he's still talking. And I get to my desk, my nose is still running. I got one hand busy here and the other one trying to write and he's talk, talk, talk. And of course I never got most of it down, but I got the gist of it. And I'm thinking, why all the snot? <laughs> I think it's because if you just woke in the middle of the night and had the thoughts, you'd think, oh, it was just me, I was making it up. But I was so distracted and yet hearing all this stuff, I think it was just the Lord's way. He had to tell me some things that were very difficult to, to believe. It was his way of getting it through. I'll just give you the core of it. I mean, if you get my book, The Spirit of Sonship, find a whole chapter on it, or maybe there's two or three, on just what it is you do to so walk with the spiritual father as to obtain far greater grace. But just remember, it's investment for the long haul. This is not the work in two minutes and then you leave the church because there's green pastures somewhere else. Um, that's the wickedness for which Esau is condemned. Uh, you'll read all about that in the book too. You know, see, see that no one among you is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the eldest son. You'll find out in this book what that actually means in today's church. So I'm not going to tell you, you can just read the book. But the one thing I want to tell you about Elisha, and they've got to quit, is the Lord said that the thing that made the difference, the thing that made it possible for his heart to be able to receive a double portion of the Spirit. I mean, how many people do you know that have got a double portion of the Spirit? I was in Sowers Nami prayer meetings for years and it was one of the most common prayers prayed on Wednesday nights. I can still remember lots of army prayer meetings where someone would pray, you know, Father, give me a double portion of your Spirit. I never ever one time heard anybody give a test me that said, praise God, he's given, you know, answer my prayers, give me a double portion. It never happened. It's because they're asking the wrong father. Well, I say that just to shock you. But Elisha and Elijah were, to, were discussing it. It has a great deal to do with the relationships you walk in. And without that, no, it's not your inheritance. It's sons who get inheritance. And what the Lord said to me was, and this is, the, this is the central message he gave me that night, that Elisha's heart was enlarged by longing for his spiritual father. I didn't think anyone would believe that. I didn't think I believed it myself. Longing. And, and this moment when Elijah's removed, you know, the, they knew he was going to go, but the... the, the the, the horses and chariots of fire separated the two of them and then it was a whirlwind that took Elijah up. And in that moment, you go read the text, Elisha just cries, you know, my father, my father. And what the Lord said to me was that in that moment, his heart was just rent with love for his father, longing for his father. 
And it was in that moment of this enlargement of love, the Lord dropped in the double portion. It's all to do with love and the enlarging of your heart. And I'm thinking, I, I, I didn't know how biblical that was until I started looking further afield and reading things like Paul saying of Timothy, how I long, how I long, the longing, see, how I long to see you. So if nothing else tonight, hopefully I've made it clear, real Christian leaders have a heart. It's a heart for each other. It's a heart for their fathers, heart for their sons. And I remember my spiritual father, Chuck, he was driving along one day and he heard the Lord say, and this would have been like back in the 1990s. He heard the Lord say, I'm going to raise a new leadership for the body of Christ. And this one will have a heart. Yeah, anyway. So I'm going to quit, but we better have some prayers. And uh, I want you to be in faith because one of the graces the Lord gives me is to release anointings. Just with a word. It doesn't take lying on of hands. It doesn't take any effort on your part, but it does take faith. Now you can stand or sit as you wish. The musos, I guess, will mostly stand. But um, we can't have you into music more than you're into faith. Hmm? Um, anyway, you can start playing when I quit praying. All right, so just be on your posts. But let me get the prayer out because I want you drinking back here as well as down there. And when I pray these kinds of prayers, nobody else prays, right? Don't pray in English, don't pray in tongues. Uh, you have to drink and I do the praying. But you do have to believe. Now, don't be passive. Passive is what you do when you're waiting for the bus and thinking, oh, well, you know, just sit here. Sooner or later we'll come along, right? There are people who sit in Holy Ghost meetings thinking that, well, he's touching others, and if he wants to, he'll touch me. No, no passivity. You're supposed to have your faith alive that says, Lord, you're here and I want it. But the opposite of that, and it will box you up just as much, is striving. So you can't strain like you're trying to get a hold of this with yourself. The right position is actually rest. So you just quiet, relax, basically relax, relax the body. Just relax the mind, completely at rest. But within that context, you believe. You just set your heart to say, Lord, I believe. And, and then just begin drinking of his spirit. So I'll pray some prayers and uh, release grace to you, anointings to you. And the favor of God, I hear the Holy Spirit say, the, and release his favor to you. Which is a lovely thing. And then I'll place his peace on you as well. So Father, I thank you that here tonight we have every heart believing God, every heart desiring to be in submission to the word of God and the son of God and and I thank you that you're here. Holy Spirit, you're here. And so now move amongst them and place your hand on every one. Lord, put your arm, put your arm around the shoulders of every person in this building right now. For the Lord says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm humble and gentle. And so I thank you, Lord, for the spirit of humility, which 
is granted tonight by grace. And I receive it from you. And in the name of the Lord Jesus, I, I release into every one of you tonight, I release into every one of you the spirit of humility, that is the spirit of Christ in Jesus' name, I release it to you. His grace rests on you. And I ask the Lord that you would take every one of these believers into a far greater grace of understanding the fear of God, the beautiful, holy, holy, holy fear of a holy God. So many do not understand, Lord, the great beauty of it. But I'm asking that you reveal to every heart here in the coming days this holy ground upon which all the saints of old have stood and walked. And I ask the Lord that you'd bring every heart here and really bring this whole church, the church that meets in this place, bring that whole church onto this holy ground of the fear of the Lord. The thing that Jesus delighted in so much, make it rich in the heart of these people. And I ask the Lord your favour for them. For everyone here tonight, may the, may the heavens be open, much grace given. And thank you for the favour that's rested upon my own life. And I ask the Lord that you take of that same favour and grant that to those who have sat under this word tonight, the, the favour of God rest on them and work for them, work out salvation in them. I ask you, Lord, you to continue to enlarge their hearts with love and with longing. May they come to such a rich place in walking with one another and with their leaders. And so I ask that you'd grant them, especially such a great portion of this the spirit of understanding. But in the name of the Lord Jesus, I receive this, this great portion a, a vast load of it, uh, like a mother load of that anointing, the spirit of understanding, and I bring it down upon the church that meets in this place. And in Jesus' name, I release it into the house. This anointing by which community is built, I release to you. And all that grace by which leaders perceive community, in the name of Jesus, I release to you. And I send it deeply into your hearts, into your spirits, and deep to your understanding. Lord, that you'd so open eyes to see. I ask that you'd grant to them, Lord, not only to all the church that meets in this place, but all the others who've gathered. Breathe on them now and grant to them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, in the knowledge of Christ. In Jesus' name, I release it over you. And in the name of the Lord Jesus, I speak over your minds and command your minds be open to understand scripture. The eyes of your heart be enlightened, Lord, flood light to the heart right now. That as they read scripture, it would so come alive and they would become so perceptive, so seeing, so hearing, so understanding, that understanding go deep to the heart. And 
So make of this, O Lord, a wise and a godly and a holy people. And may all your mercies rest over them and strengthen them. And so we believe God tonight for these good things. I pray the gifts of the Spirit would spring up in them all the more that have knowledge, that have prophecy and insight and in, interpret things, that hear your voice. May they be given all good things. But I ask, O Lord, that there be a, a deeper wisdom by which they know your voice and your touch. And so may a great grace be established here and accrue to this house. I bless the house. I bless the leaders. I bless the pastors who watch over this people. Lord, that you'd so enlarge their hearts, enlarge their understanding, enlarge their wisdom. And I pray more than anything else, fill them with love. Fill them with such love, oh God. <clears throat> and may the spirit of fathering and of sonship and of holy community fill this whole house just as it fills heaven. Yes, the will of God be done on earth, on, in this earth, as it is in heaven. And Lord, I, I pray that all the richness of this grace would go out now and fill every home, would come upon home life and upon marriages and marriage partners and upon children, fill the homes of all these dear ones with this mercy and with the presence of the Lord. And wherever there are unclean spirits, Lord, may this grace going out tonight so radiate those homes and those marriages that all that is just cleaned away. So I pray your mercy, Lord, upon all these families. I thank you for the peace of the Lord Jesus. And we receive that peace tonight. I receive, Lord, from your hand this blessing of shalom, this grace, this anointing of peace. And I place that peace upon the mind and the heart of every person here. And I release it to you in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, I, I give it to you. And I release it into your homes, peace from God our Saviour. The peace that passes understanding, such a powerful grace. Now let it flood your homes and flood this whole city and all these neighbourhoods. Lord, your peace rest here. And I thank you that even now, the power of occultism is being broken and ley lines shattered and unholy covenants, unclean sacrifices, all cancelled in Jesus' name. I declare the blood of Christ over it all. Lord, lift up the church and lift up the word of God in these communities. Bring about the maturity of the body of Christ, not only here, but all across this land, we pray. And thank you, Lord, that you hear our prayers. Everyone believe, just for a moment, just drink the Holy Spirit. Just in your heart, you know, say, Lord, I receive your spirit. I receive your grace, I receive your mercy. I receive your peace. And peace is a very easy anointing to receive. You can be anywhere, sitting in your house or on the bus stop or at your desk at work and 
You just pause and say, Lord, I receive your peace. You'd be amazed what floods in. And so I bless you in Jesus' name, commend you to the word of his grace. And I thank, I thank you, Lord, that you have um, attended to us tonight. You've waited upon us by the Holy Spirit. You've served us. We're so grateful. And we give thanks to you and honor and praise to the living God. Amen. Amen. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to this message. For more information on what you've just heard or how to visit us, go to c3talgra.org.au. We hope to see you at church soon.